Alrighty. Well, hey, if you guys were here last week, you'll notice that in that bullet list I had, John, I shared this little kind of little pun, little joke thing about marriage, and it basically said this. Marriage is a relationship in which one person is always right and the other one's a husband. Remember that? Yeah, ha, 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 real funny, ladies. But uh, anyway, to be honest with you, man, I felt kind of guilty about that as a fellow man. Okay, and I want to make it up for you this Sunday, right, guys? Okay, so I'm here for you. We got to stick together, we men. And so I'm going to share with you guys this morning the top 10 things that men know about women. So who's laughing now, right? So that's right. Let's take a look here. The top 10 things men know about women. Men, are you ready to shine? Woo, it's our time. Here we go. Top 10 things. Here we go. Well, that about does it. So anyway. Yeah, as you guys can see, we men may not know a lot about you ladies, but this morning I hope there's something that we all know, whether we're men or women, and that is this, you do not need to doubt that the Bible really did come from God. And folks, we've uh, been seeing that, uh, unfortunately, that's no longer the case, okay? Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't seem to matter nowadays due to a century or more of skepticism and false criticism towards the Bible and, and unfortunately, hypocritical behavior of Christians who never even pick up the Bible Okay, even though we'll say it came from God, uh, people, even Christians, are starting to doubt that the Bible really did come from God. Therefore, to stave off this hypocrisy and criticism, uh, even in the church, folks, we're going to continue our study. That's right. Did the Bible really come from God? All four of you. Praise God. It's better than two from last week. That's right. And folks, what we're doing uh, is taking a look at the 10 lines of logical evidence showing us the Bible really did come from God. Hello. Okay. Uh, God says, come let us reason together. Use your brain. Okay. Uh, He meets us uh, where we're at. And we've already seen the first five evidences that God gives us was that the Bible says so. Jesus says so. The apostles say so. And the last time, two more, history and the amazing transmission standards of the Bible alone say so. And what we saw there, if you were here last week, is not only has the bulk of humanity for the past 2,000 years clearly believed the Bible came from God. Uh, Number two, we saw the unique, amazing, reliable transmission standards of the Bible uh, prove that it had to come from God. The Bible is the only book on the planet that has these kind of standards, folks, okay? But that's still not all. The sixth line of logical evidence showing us the Bible came from God is that manuscripts say so. Okay, manuscripts prove beyond a shadow of a doubt you can trust the Bible. It came from God. But don't listen to my word. Let's listen to his. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 is going to be our opening text there. And if you find Colossians, what do you do? Turn to chapter 4. That's right. You guys are cooking now. That's right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 through 16. And this is obviously the end of the letter, and Paul's given his final greetings. And he gives them some instructions towards the end here, what to do with this manuscript, i.e. letter, that's uh, provided for us in the Bible to the church of Colossae, okay? So here's what Paul says, Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what he says. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. And I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances, and he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who's one of you, and they will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, you've received instructions about him, and if he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who's called Justice, also sends greetings. Uh, These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who's one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. He says, I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. 
He says, our, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. And, and, and give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. Now listen to this. And this letter that we just are reading has been, uh, after it's been read to you, see to it that it's also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that you turn and in turn read the letter from who? From Laodicea, as he says there, okay? So put your thinking caps on this morning. How do we know that the Bible really did come from God? Well, apparently the sixth line of evidence is that manuscripts or copies of the letters, we just read one, of the Bible say so, okay? And this is what the skeptics seem to miss, folks, okay? What did we just read? Paul said to the Colossian church there that when they're done reading that manuscript, i.e. that letter that came from Paul, that they were to turn around and do what? Then get busy passing that letter, their letter, onto the church allowed to see it, and then you swap it and you start reading the one that came from them that he wrote to them, right? Now, here's the whole point in bringing that up. This massive amount of letters, which eventually became the Bible, as we know, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, okay, is huge proof, folks, that the Bible really did come from God and it's trustworthy and reliable, okay? And the reason why this is important, because the skeptics will usually come back after what we saw last week with the transmission standards, okay? And they'll come back and say something like this. Well, okay, fine. Maybe you got me with those transmission standards, okay? And maybe the Bible was transmitted reliably for us by the authors of the Bible. But wait a second. We still can't be sure of the accuracy of the Bible since we don't have the actual original copies. Right? Anybody ever hear that? Okay? But here's the point, folks. Nothing could be further from the truth. And the reason why is because, listen, the more manuscript copies that you have of a document, the more you can go back like a reverse family tree and you can cross-reference and check to make sure that you are accurate to the original Okay, that's clearly, the, 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 in fact, so much so, folks, that researcher Sir Frederick Kenyon said this, because we have so many manuscripts of the Bible, unlike any other ancient document in history, he said this, he says, the last foundation, the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us as they were written have now been removed. In other words, why are you even bringing that up? It's a moot point. It's illogical when you compare it to other things, okay? And speaking of which, this truth really hits home, especially when uh, you compare the manuscript copies, copies of other books of antiquity that nobody questions, mind you. When you compare that to the manuscript copies that we have, let's first of all look at the New Testament, okay? It's quite embarrassing for those other ones that nobody uh, questions, mind you. Let's take a look at those, okay? First of all, we're gonna take a look at the author, when it was written, the earliest copy we have, the time span from the original, and how many copies we actually have on the planet. The first one's Homer, not to be confused with Mr. Simpson. That's a cartoon, Ruth. I'm, it's not real. It's TV. Hello, okay, I'm, but I'm here for you, man, truckers. Okay, but anyway, that's right. Uh, uh, written about 900 BC, but the earliest copy we have, it's just a copy, is from 400 BC, so that's 500 years removed from the original, and we got 643 copies on the planet. Okay, writings of this guy named Pliny. We've got seven copies on the planet of his writings, 750 years removed from the original. Herodotus, the father, supposedly, of history, okay, we have eight copies on the planet, 1,300 years removed from the original writing. Uh, Catalyst, we have three on the planet, period, that's it, 1,600 years removed from the original. We've got Euripides, nine copies on the planet, 1,500 years removed from the original. Aristotle, whoo, how many of you guys heard of Aristotle, right? Everybody hears about him. Nobody questions his writings, do they? Uh-uh. Well, we have 49 copies on the planet of his writings, and they're 1,400 years removed from the original. But it gets even worse. My son's favorite philosopher, Plato. Yes. Uh, we have seven. I had to let that sink in there. Uh, it had seven copies on the planet. That's it. And they're 1,200 years removed from the original. That's it. 
Nobody questions him. And yet, here's the point. We have portions of the New Testament, John's gospel, okay? Uh, it's called the Ryland's Parchment. 25 years from the time it was written, and we got 24,000 plus copies. Now, you put your thinking caps on together, folks, and this is the point. I don't know about you, but I find it extremely odd today that nobody questions the authenticity of Plato's writings, right? I had secular philosophy in, in, in uh, college, right? And I don't remember any person in class. I don't remember the instructor saying, now, I know you're just, you're just full of doubt and skepticism because I have to warn you ahead of time. You can't really trust what we're reading from Aristotle and Plato because they're 1,200 years removed from the original and 1,400 years respectively. And we only have seven copies. So, so, so it's, nay. That never came up. Nobody ever questioned it. Nobody even brought it up. You just took it in as, well, this is what he wrote, right? It's extremely odd that nobody questions Plato or Aristotle, yet we have portions of the New Testament within 25 years of the actual writing, and we've got tens of thousands of copies to ensure accurate to the original, and yet they still scoff at you and I, the Christian, who says, no, the Bible is reliable. It's trustworthy and true. In fact, folks, we've even recently found more New Testament books that's even closer to the actual writing than that. And this is what, I don't know why they won't show on History Channel. Well, actually, I think I do know why. Uh, they actually found some New Testament books contained within the same area of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's even less than 25 years. Check this out. This is cool. One of the most exciting finds involves Cave 7. In Cave 7, we have different types of manuscripts. They're written on papyrus rather than the parchment, the sheepskin. And it is written in Greek, not the Hebrew or Paleo-Hebrew. Nineteen small fragments of papyrus were found. Seventeen of the nineteen fragments were unread. The reason was they had to find them in the Old Testament, uh, and they weren't Old Testament. They were New Testament fragments. One of the most obvious is from Mark, and this particular fragment mentions uh, Gennesaret, which is a peculiar word for the Sea of Galilee used only in the first century. And so this helps date it together with the style of the letters. And this is a quotation from Mark 6, 52 and 53 that mentions Gennesaret. Well, with computers you can adjust the margins, but when you adjust it, bingo. It fits up and down and sideways with the word Gennesaret, that unique first, testament, uh, first century word right in the middle. This is Mark 6, 52 through 53. And as they continued to analyze it, they found several other passages from Mark and Acts and Romans and 1 Timothy and 2 Peter and James verified. And the real significance is this is necessarily before 68 A.D. when the Romans came in and destroyed all of this. For those of you who don't realize the writing of those New Testament books and the dates that are estimated, let me put it all together for you. If you take the 68 date there, which they're pretty sure about, Okay, that means this, folks. You put it all together uh, with these New Testament manuscripts that they found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, this is cool. This means we now have portions of the Gospel of Mark. Remember the other one we had was John's Gospel within 25 years. Oh, by the way, Aristotle and Plato, 1,200 years, 1,400 years. We now have portions of the Gospel of Mark within 13 years of the actual time of writing. We have portions of the book of Romans within 11 years of the actual writing, portions of the book of James within eight years, the book of Acts within five years, 1 Timothy within five years, and listen, portions of the book of 2 Peter the exact same year it was written. No other book on the planet comes with such veracity, okay? And I'll say it again, put, the, put it together. Use your thinking caps. Why in the world do you never, ever, ever, ever question 
the writings of Plato. We got seven copies, 1,200 years removed. But now you continue to scoff at you and I, the Christian, when we say the Bible is reliable, yet we actually have now, for the first time, actual portions of the New Testament within the same actual year of writing. It's called hypocrisy, okay? And this is why one researcher stated this. He says, no book... No book from the ancient world comes to us with more abundant evidence for its integrity than does the New Testament. The authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be listed, regarded as finally established. In other words, it's done. It's done. Why are you even questioning? That's actually illogical, okay? But that's just the New Testament. How about the Old Testament? Does it hold up? Is it accurate? Is it true and reliable, Tom? Hey, praise God, Give you that five bucks later or share that nuclear jello with you at the potluck. That's right. Uh, well, well, how do we know? Do we just take Tom's word for him? No, that's right. Wrong. We don't. Uh, but nothing against you, Tom. Uh, that's the importance of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Yes, uh, not only it helps with the New Testament manuscripts, but folks, here's the point if you're not aware of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, uh, it, it provided for us the earliest copy now that we have of the Old Testament, okay? The previous oldest copy we had was from about 900 AD, okay? But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, that reduced the gap by about 1,000 years to 125 BC. Now, here's the point. When they first came out, man, it was making the airwaves, TV, and the skeptics, they just couldn't wait to get their hands on what do these Dead Sea Scrolls say because they're 1,000 years removed from the original. I mean, we're going to point out so many mistakes and so many errors in there from the version we have today of the Old Testament. Ha ha, they couldn't wait to get their hands on it and expose all these errors. Well, you don't hear much about it today, do you? No, you know why, in my opinion? Because they didn't expose any errors. Okay, what little variances over 1,000 years what little variances there were were just minor things like punctuation and, and, and spelling. That's it, okay? And the reason why you even had uh, some of the differences in spelling was because the Qumran community there, spoke, uh, they spoke a different dialect of Hebrew. And it changes nothing. Let me give you some examples because we even do this today with differences of dialect, okay? Uh, some people today say, I'm going to the theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Other folks would say, well, yeah, I'm going to the theater, no, theater as well but they spell it T-H-E-A-T-R-E, right? Well, there you have a major doctrinal difference. That proves that it's inaccurate and it's... it's exactly, it changes nothing. These are the supposed changes uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It means nothing. It's just a different dialect. Let me give you another example. Savior. We would say Savior, S-A-V-I-O-R, right? Here in America. That's right. Well, if you go to Canada, eh, uh, they're going to spell it like this, S-A-V-I-O-U-R. Well, there you have it. Radically different. That changes everything in the conversation because that word is... No, it's just a difference in dialect. We do the same thing today. These are the supposed changes uh, in the uh, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. It means nothing, okay? And I'll give you one more obvious example. Some people, of course, would say chicken. Others would say, hey, call it for what it is. It's evil, okay? And uh, had to put that one in there. That's right. Okay, it's obvious. But if you can see with the other examples of dialectic differences, it was minor stuff, okay? In the Dead Sea Scrolls, just like those examples, which means we have no doctrinal variances from what we got today over a thousand years. It's amazing, okay? Proves once again the validity of the scripture and is trustworthy, okay? In fact, they also found an early book of the New Testament uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls that just like the New Testament was also written within the lifetime of that book. Let's take a look at that proof as well. Well, all of these years of copying have to produce changes. Not so. When we understand the way they did it, the way they counted the letters, 
And then when we compare what was a thousand years earlier from the oldest, it's perfect. When we look at the, the youngest Old Testament book, scholars will differ, but conservatively, the one that was written latest is about 325 before Christ, B.C. The oldest Dead Sea Scroll was written 300 years before Christ. We've got about 25 years separating the original. Now, Wikipedia, as I suggested, said that oldest Dead Sea Scroll was 325. Well, certainly less than a generation removed from the original. We have copies today. We have dependable text, and it's not reasonable to think otherwise. Can I translate that statement that he just stated there? It's illogical to doubt, once you look at the evidence, that the Bible really did come from God, okay? Especially when you compare it to other works that nobody uh, questions, mind you, okay? And this is why Sir Frederick Kenyon, he stated this as well. He said the Christian could take the whole Bible, old and new, okay, in his hand and say with the, without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God handed down without essential loss uh, from generation, from generation throughout the centuries. It's accurate, it's reliable, unlike any other book on the planet, okay? And folks, this is why you can't have it both ways. You can't accept some books of antiquity, okay, like Aristotle or Plato, that have little or no manuscript data and then turn around and deny the authenticity of the Bible. And the reason why is because the volumes of manuscripts that we have of the Bible, old and new, and the earliest copies of the manuscripts, some within the actual year of writing, prove that the Bible really did come from God. And anything short of that, after you look at the facts and you still go down that route, you're the one that's being illogical with all due respect, okay? But that's not all. The seventh line of evidence showing us the Bible really did come from God is that that's right, Indiana Jones, eat your heart out, archaeology says so. This is cool, man. Oh, this is great. We're gonna take a look at just one true, actual, historical passage recorded for us in the Bible, and that's the book of Exodus. Anybody hear of the Exodus? Yes, Pastor Billy, we're awake. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad for your cooperation. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 through 38 and 40 through 41 says this. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, and there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Put all that together, it's about 2 million people is the estimates conservatively, and not to mention many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of the 430 years, to the very day, God knows what he's doing, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt, okay? And folks, the reason why I bring this passage up is because to me, it's another logical conclusion. How do we know that the Bible really did come from God? Well, the seventh line of evidence is that archaeology says so, and that's the importance of reading what we just read. The Bible says right there in that passage that we have a literal exodus of the literal Israelite people who were heading towards a literal promised land that God was literally given to them, right? This is why it's important, because it's an actual, we might, we might take it for granted, but the world looks at this and scoffs. It's an actual historical event that's recorded for us in the Bible, okay? And yet the skeptic would say something like this. Well, listen, I got you Christians now because you keep saying throughout this whole study that God is holy and that means he doesn't sin, which means he doesn't lie because lying's a sin, right? Well, wait a second. We find uh, historical inaccuracies in the Bible. Therefore, the Bible could not come from God because he can't lie. That's a serious charge. Uh, thanks for asking, Bill. 
And so the question is this, well, all right, let's put it to the test. Is it true? Are there historical inaccuracies in the Bible? No. In fact, folks, you'll be happy to know. Indiana Jones, save your time, bro. Just go to the Bible. It gets it right 100% of the time. You'll be happy to know, folks, that I'm, I kid you not, I, I could spend weeks just on this one uh, point here, but uh, we've got to have that potluck soon enough. Okay, but uh, it has been the privileged duty of the archaeologist shovel to silence the mouth of the skeptic, okay? And I'm going to share with you just a few, just a few of the examples of the Bible being verified historically accurate through archaeology in the Old and New Testament. Let's take a look at the first thing that everybody wants to scoff at towards the beginning of the Bible, the flood. How many guys say, oh, you still believe in that? There's a real gut. That's what they scoff at. Well, let's take a look at just a few of the facts. Many people disbelieve this historical account. It's a real guy, real boat, really happened, okay? But they even go so far as to say, well, wait a second. Come on, Christian. If there really was this global flood, that affected all of humanity, then surely we'd find some evidence of it being recorded for us outside the Bible, right? Well, guess what, folks? There's not just one. There's about 500 different uh, historical accounts of the flood from around the world, okay? I don't have time for all 500, so let's just take a look at a few of them outside the Bible, okay? How about the flood account of Babylon? According to Babylonian accounts, the pre-flood people were giants who became impious and depraved, except one of them who reverenced the gods and was wise and prudent. His name was Noah, and he dwelt with his three sons, Sim, Japheth, Chim, and their wives, Tadia, Pandora, Noella, and Noegla. All right, if you won't go with little Billy, how about Noegla? A little, stick with Billy, that's what I thought. That's right. Uh, no Noah foresaw the destruction and began building an ark. 78 years later, the oceans, inland seas, and rivers burst forth from below. That's what the Bible says, not just from above, but it came from below. Okay, and along with many days of violence, rain okay the waters overflowed all the mountains and the human race was drowned except noah and his family who survived on his ship and the ship came to rest at last on top of the mountains outside the bible they say the same thing uh the flood account of china okay how about that ancient chinese writing uh, refers to an, a violent catastrophe that occurred on the earth it's in their classic book called the hiking okay and it tells the story of fuhai fuhai how about fuhai Stick with Billy. Uh, Fuhai, uh, whom the Chinese consider the father of their civilization. Well, what happened to him? Well, this history records that Fuhai, his wife, three sons, three daughters, escaped a great flood. He and his family were the only people left alive on earth, and they are the ones who repopulated the world. In fact, in an ancient temple in China, there's an ancient painting that shows Fuhai's boat. Okay, And on that boat, there's a picture of a boat raging in waters with dolphins swimming around it and a dove with an olive branch in its beak flying backward towards the boat. Okay, a couple more I'll just give you on that. How about the Hawaiian, the Pacific Islands has the same account. Long after the death of the first man, they have recorded for us, the world became a wicked and terrible place to live. There was only one uh, good man left. His name was Nu'u. I'm giving you options. Okay, we'll stick to Billy. Uh, he made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. And the water came up all over the earth and killed all the people. Only Nu'u and his family were saved. Okay, how about in Mexico? It's all over the world. And let's take a look. Discovered in the of the Toltec Indians, because you think, oh, they don't have any. Yes, they, everybody's got a flood account, folks. It's almost like it really happened. Uh, is a story in which they believe that the first world lasted 1,716 years from basically Adam until the flood. That's not too far off from biblical chronology. Very interesting. And was destroyed by a great flood that covered even the highest mountains. Uh, the story tells of a man named Tappy. Yeah, you know where I'm going. Uh, it was a very pious man, and the creator told Taffy uh, to build a boat and that he would live in it and escape destruction. He was told that he should take his wife and a pair of every animal that was alive into his boat, and naturally everybody thought he was crazy. And then the rain started, and he wasn't so crazy. Same thing today. We're saying that, you know, hey, you better be prepared. The church is going to disappear. Jesus Christ is going to come back from the sky, and oh, yeah. 
until it happens. They scoffed at Noah. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. They're going to do it again, unfortunately, a second time. Then men and animals tried to climb the mountains, but the mountains became flooded as well. Finally, the rain ended and Tappy decided that the water dried up, so he let loose a dove. And then they recorded an interesting thing. Following the great flood, people began to multiply and build, guess what? Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. To build a very great high tower, to provide a safe place in case the world were ever destroyed again. However, everyone started to speak in different languages. And the people became confused and wandered to other parts of the world. In fact, other cultures also speak. It's not just the Mexican. Mexico culture, the Toltec. Uh, it's other cultures record even the Tower of Babel, the confusion of languages outside the Bible. Sumerian tablets say this, quote, there was a golden age when all mankind spoke the same language. Speech was then confused by the God, the Lord of Wisdom. Babylonians, that's the Tower of Babel. Gee whiz, it happened there. They record. Yes, they do. Thank you for asking. And they said this, the gods destroyed a temple tower and scattered them abroad and made their speech strange okay and that's just a flood how about the black steel this is an important archaeological find because skeptics would say there's no way that moses was the author of the pentateuch the first five books of the bible because they say because writing back then wasn't even developed so that can't be true wrong answer thanks to the discovery of the black steel that had on it and you can, there's the picture the written form of the laws of hammurabi which proved that in fact writing was commonplace back at that time just like Bible states, okay? Uh, and speaking of writing, this is cool. According to the Harvard Chinese Japanese Library, written Chinese dates back to approximately 2500 BC when it starts. And if you add up the dates, that's right about the time after the flood when mankind has a restart and the languages get confused and then begin to disperse. Interesting fit there, okay? Now, uh, and, and this is important because the languages of the world, they have their origin, but the Chinese language, if you know anything about it, it's a pictorial language. Can they draw these little pictures right there that we have to decipher? Okay, but it also is a language that hasn't really changed much over time. Now, here's what's really cool. Oddly enough, when you look at these word pictures and you see what they mean, they actually speak of Noah's flood. Okay, this is really cool. The Chinese word for boat, listen, just happens to be, it's depicted by eight mouths, eight people inside of a container. That's the Chinese word for boat. Why is that in there? Oh, that's not all. The Chinese word for total is the uniting of eight people, once again, eight of all, that's the survivors of the flood, uh, who join hands of the earth. That's their word for total. Uh, the word for empty is made up of two words, cave and work. Cave is depicted as eight people, not seven, not 412, eight people under one roof. Some would say this shows that when Noah and his family left the ark, they first moved into a cave for shelter, and hence eight people under one roof, and then they left the cave each day to work at emptying the ark and they shared this post-flood experience with future generations, and it made its way into the Chinese language, okay? But that's not all. The Chinese character for devil is formed from three characters, man, garden, and private. Well, that's interesting. Uh, the words rebellion and confusion, you know, Tower of Babel in the Chinese, it links together words for tongue and walking. God confused the tongues, the languages, and they started walking. It's embedded in the Chinese language. And finally, the word for garden or field is a square Okay, inside that square are four straight lines radiating outward in kind of a plus shape. Okay, and according to Genesis 2, a river in the Garden of Eden flowed outward in four streams and watered the entire garden. But I'm sure all that's just quinky-dink, right, Tom? No, sir, is right. Uh, that's right. How about uh, the patriarchs, okay? People would even uh, want to say that the biblical account of the patriarchs in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is completely unfounded. But thanks to the discovery of the Ebla archives, or tablets, you can see one of them right there, uh, in the 1970s in northern Syria, we now know that the biblical account of the uh, uh, patriarchs is not only accurate and true, but even the personal names and the places they mention, gee whiz, those are true as well. What a surprise. How about doors in Sodom? 
A skeptic say, hey, man, there's no, the, the people back in those days, they didn't use doors at the count of Lot and Sodom. You know, when the people came to try to get them and they, he, he used the door as a, a means of protection to keep them out and protect the angels and his family. Remember that? They said, well, there's, they didn't use doors back then. Oops, sorry. Thanks to the discovery of archaeologists, we now know that doors were not only used back then, but used as a means of protection exactly like the Bible states. In fact, many skeptics also deny the actual literal destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not true. That's a lie. I'll just try to be kind on that one. Uh, we now know, folks, we've not only discovered the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, near the Dead Sea, but both places, according to the evidence, were destroyed by an enormous fire, and the debris is about three feet thick, and there's brimstone and ash found in the area. In fact, I had another video clip, but I had to cut something out because we've got to make it to that potluck. Okay, the guy is still embedded in the walls there, these little balls, these brimstone balls, and the guy took his lighter right there on the spot, just pulled it out of the ground, and it caught on fire. Actual, it's just absolutely amazing evidence that they, for some reason, don't share on the history channel. Uh, camels, skeptics say that the usage of camels back in the books of Genesis, that's not true. They didn't use them back then. Ain't wrong answer. Thanks to the discovery of archaeology, we now know they not only were used, they were used exactly in that time just like the Bible states. How about the Hittites? This was a big one. Skeptics claim there was no such people as the Hittites that were mentioned in the Old Testament. Come on, you can't trust the Bible. Well, folks, this is what's funny. Thanks to the discovery of archaeologists, we now know the Hittites were not just a real people. We have now 1,200 years of their existence on record. Oops. How come you don't put that on the front page of the newspaper and say, we were wrong? Okay, you want to discount the Bible, okay? Uh, Solomon's wealth. People say, no, man, all this biblical references to King Solomon having amassing all this wealth, that's unfounded, that's not true. No, it's not. We now know that wealth in antiquity was in fact concentrated with the king, so it's entirely feasible like the Bible talks about. King Sargon, people say that there's no such thing as this Assyrian king that uh, the book of Isaiah mentions. Well, listen to this, this is cool. We not only know he existed, but we found his palace in Iraq and on his palace walls, the very event that Isaiah recorded for us in chapter 20 is recorded there as well. Actual news back in the day. Okay, and the Bible records it for us. How about various battles? Skeptics say, oh, we can't find any evidence of these battles uh, that the Bible keeps mentioning, this war and that war and these people going here. No, that's not true. Let me give you just a couple of them. The military campaign into Israel uh, by Pharaoh uh, is recorded on the temple walls and Thebes in Egypt. It's not just in the Bible. It's also throughout secular evidence. Uh, the revolt of Moab against Israel is recorded in the Misha inscription. The fall of Samaria to Sargon II is also recorded on his palace walls. The campaign of the Assyrian king Sennacherib against Judah is recorded on the Taylor prism. Uh, the siege of Lachish, also by Sennacherib, is recorded on the Lachish reliefs. The assassination of Sennacherib by his own sons that the Bible talks about is recorded on the annals of his son, Ashardan. Okay, the fall of Nineveh is recorded on the tablet of Nabopolassar. The fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, is recorded in the Babylonian uh, uh, records. The captivity of Jehoiakim of Judah is recorded on the Babylonian ration records, okay, because the Bible says he's got a certain amount and things of that nature. The fall of Babylon to the Medes and Persians is recorded on the Cyrus cylinder and the freeing of the captives in Babylon by Cyrus the Great is also recorded on the Cyrus cylinders. Not just in the Bible, they also find these actual events. They're historical and true outside the Bible. How about Belshazzar? Skeptics say that there's no such person as this guy. We can't find records of him nowhere. This can't be true. The book of Daniel, baloney. Well, what's baloney is their assumptions. We not only know that he ruled and existed in Babylon, just like he said, but listen to this, you talk about specifics. We even found tablets that showed how he was, in fact, Nabonidus' son, who served as a co-regent, which means second in power, 
in Babylon. Therefore, when he offered Daniel, in the book of Daniel, the third highest ruler position in the kingdom for reading the handwriting on the wall, it would have been legitimate because we know historically that was the next available position. Everything is accurate as recorded for us there. And various figures, people want to doubt not only Belshazzar, but tons of people in the Bible, Old and New Testament, yet over 50 persons named in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, including some of their likenesses. We know what they look like have been found outside of the Bible. How about the Exodus? This was our passage, okay? Here's where we're going. Many say that there's no evidence of, what did we just read? Historical account? Add up the numbers? About 2 million people journey to the devils. You would think if that happened, we'd find some evidence of it, right? How many guys heard that? Okay, well, guess what, folks? We do, okay? This is really uh, totally cool. Uh, and that's why we find chariot wheels at the bottom of the crossing. Now check out this video. How do you get around this one? The formations at Nueva Beach are generally smaller and scattered randomly across the seafloor. Divers familiar with the area have compared the distribution of coral here to a junkyard and the aftermath of a disaster. Since the earliest explorations at Nueva, one distinctive type of formation has often been identified on the seafloor. A slender, table-like structure, sometimes standing on end, with a coral-encrusted base, a straight shaft, and a circular top. It's a 90-degree angle, a right angle, between something that looks like an axle and the wheel. And you can see this in different varieties, and it looks very different from normal coral growth. And uh, it is like a man-made structure with a coral growth on it. While most of the possible artifacts found off the coast of Nueva are covered with coral, one significant discovery was not. There is one find at uh, the Nueva location that is of great interest, and that is the gilded wheel. It is a wooden basic structure of the wheel and is covered with gold or electrum. It's a mixture of silver and gold. And corals have not been able to grow on it. It's been very well preserved. Although it's very fragile, it seems like the wooden content has been dissolved. So I mean, you could break it if you would try to remove it. After its discovery, the fragile wheel-shaped veneer was photographed then left in place on the seafloor. Later analysis revealed that its dimensions and design resembled four-spoke chariot wheels painted on an 18th dynasty tomb wall near the biblical date of the Exodus. Well, gee whiz, I'm sure that's a quinky-dink, Tom. What are you doing with that stuff down there? It's almost like the Bible's really true and accurate. Oh, but that's not all, folks. They only find down there, I don't have time to show you in that same video, uh, they found, guess what, human remains down there? Horse remains down there. Shocker. Okay, it's almost like the army of Pharaoh got destroyed uh, down there. Uh, but they also find clear evidence of uh, the Israelites' journey uh, beyond the Red Sea and all the events that they encountered. Let me just share a few of those with you. Let's take a look at that one. Now across, the explorers felt confident they had found strong evidence of the Exodus. But with a foreboding desert stretched before them, the question remained, where did the children of Israel go from here? 
First, as they got out on the other side, they, they rejoiced. The Bible says they went three days into the wilderness and they found the bitter springs of Mara. Um, they should have stopped at some springs along the way, some bitter water springs. Sure enough, we found these springs sitting right there by the road. And we went over and, and tasted the water and it was so bitter you couldn't touch it to your tongue. We opened the Bible up and we started thumbing through the pages. We're thinking, what are we going to see next? And the Bible tells us that they came to the 70 palms and 12 springs of Elam. As we're driving along, uh, here's a whole bunch of palms, a whole bunch of springs. And this, this like really, really blew me away. And within the palm trees, we found several springs of clear water bubbling up out of the ground. Now, today they have put these concrete encasements around these springs so that the water doesn't seep out into the sand. But we did find evidence of 12 springs of water bubbling up out of the ground, as the Bible says, amongst the palm trees. What would come next would be a surprise. God's command to Moses was to strike the rock at Horeb, and water would come gushing out for his thirsty nation. Could this have really happened? Would there be any evidence remaining of this? And most important, could this rock still be in existence? It must have been a very, a very pronounced rock because the Bible describes it as the split rock at Horeb. You would have been able to see it from miles away. A very unique rock, and there was a very unique rock indeed there, right on the west side of the mountain. It goes up 40 feet from this knoll area and it has a fracture right down the middle. It goes from top to bottom, about 19 inches wide. Uh, below this rock, you can see where the water has washed it smooth, that it came out in millions and maybe billions of gallons of water that poured forth over these rocks. This is not sandstone. This is dense granite rock that the water has rushed over, thus making it smooth now. This part of the world only gets a half an inch of rain every 10 years. It's impossible for this little rainfall to wash away an entire mountainside and make the granite boulders smooth. Evidence was mounting, but how would the Israelites get enough water for an entire nation of perhaps two million people? They would have needed a lake of water because they had up to two million people there possibly. We found an area that water came in and filled up this granite basin, and it filled it up, and it was several acres in size. Like a puzzle, the pieces were all fitting together. But what would they discover at the top of Jabal al-Lawz? If this was the holy mountain that God touched, what would they find? We saw looming up in front of us this mountain, about 8,000-foot peak, Jabal al-Lawz. And the very unique thing about the top of it is that it's black on the top. Why is the top of this mountain black and none of the other mountains around there are black on the top? And it's like such an unusual, just a visual image. And we were drawn to climb this mountain to see what these unique black rocks were. And so the climb began and we eventually got there. When we got to the top, we found these rocks that were 
blackened on the outside. They were shiny black, uh, as if some kind of an external heat source melted them. Which fits again with scripture that says that this mountain was touched by God and by fire and lightning and whatever. So it would make sense it would be blackened. And God said he descended on the mountain in flames of a furnace. And then uh, Larry said, hey, they may be volcanic. So I took a big rock and I slammed it down on top of another one. We broke off a chunk of this. And we were amazed when we looked at this rock that it was melted, crusty on the outside, but it was granite on the inside. And we broke other rocks in the area. Sure enough, all of them, they were melted black on top, were granite on the inside. Wow. How many guys would say that would probably be a good show for the History Channel? You'd actually sit down and watch that. Why don't they show that? I think I kind of know why. Hang with me. Turn to somebody and say, we're going to make it to the potluck. It's going to be okay. Go ahead. I know it's in your brain. All right. I got to give you some examples of the New Testament. Just a few of them. Hang with me. Luke's census. The skeptic says this. They claim that the account of Luke's gospel of the census that was taken, you know, they had to go and take the census, Mary and Joseph. They said, oh, we don't even find records of that in Roman history. This is baloney. Wrong answer. Thanks to archaeology, we know that census taking was commonplace during that time, just like the Bible states. Pontius Pilate, that was a big one. And skeptics say there's no records of this guy in Roman records. I mean, surely this guy's a, a big character in the crucifixion of Jesus. We'd find records. Well, guess what? We do. Just trust the Bible. Uh, thanks to the discovery of archaeologists, we know that he was not only a real person, he was ruling in Judea, just like the Bible states. In fact, here's the actual rock they discovered, 1961. Uh, archaeologists uh, were excavating an ancient Roman uh, amphitheater near Caesarea. They uncovered this interesting limestone block, and on it is the, uh, a description of a dedication to Tiberius Caesar that says on it, it's from Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Just keep digging, trust the Bible, no need to scoff. Uh, the Pool of Bethesda, skeptics say there's no evidence for this pool, you know, the one where Jesus healed the, the, the crippled man. Uh, they not only have known that it now exists, the Pool of Bethesda, it's exactly where the Bible says it was supposed to be. Okay, shocker. Okay, and the seat of Moses. Skeptics say that uh, this type of seat, as mentioned in the Bible, is totally figurative. We can't find it. You shouldn't take it literal, blah, blah, blah. There's no evidence of its existence. You know where I'm going with this. We now know, thanks to archaeology, that the seat of Moses was an actual seat. There's a picture of one that was made of stone where the teacher of the synagogue would have sat just like the Bible states. You don't have to doubt. Now, this is a recent discovery, Caiaphas. Okay, the crucifixion of Jesus. He was the high priest there for 18 years. And it was this same Caiaphas that the New Testament talks about uh, that Jesus was taken to his house after he was arrested. And he asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? So Jesus says, I am. Okay, and, and then he handed Jesus over to Pilate to be tried. Now, people say, well, where is this guy? And, well, listen to this. This is what's really cool. He, they, he's not only real, but recently, this is a recent discovery. They found his family tomb, okay, including him, the actual guy, discovered by accident that were working, construction workers making a road south of the old city part of Jerusalem there. And listen to this. They were called to the scene. They found these, and there's the actual picture, limestone boxes, they're called ossuaries, with the remains of Caius' family, including himself. Listen to this. The most beautifully decorated one, that's it right there, was inscribed with his name on it. And sure enough, inside, guess what? was the remains of a 60-year-old man that the, the people, even secular, are saying, for sh assuredly, this has got to be the same guy, the same exact Caiaphas that's mentioned in the New Testament. There he is. And as one man states this, he says, this remarkable discovery has, for the first time, provided for us with the actual physical remains of an actual character, person, mentioned in the Bible. Folks, here's the point. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of saying you look at all this archaeological evidence and maybe it's just me, but I'm thinking it's God's way of saying to the skeptic, nanny, nanny, boo-boo in Jesus' name. You know what I'm saying? 
That's what I get with it. Now, now real quickly, folks, before we close, uh, contrast this, because you got to contrast this. There's so much evidence, Old and New Testament, right? We're seeing just a tip of the iceberg of it, okay? Now, contrast this with the Book of Mormon that would have you and I believe that their so-called New New Testament of Jesus Christ is accurate and reliable and trustworthy, just like our Bible, right? No. Uh, one of the big major problems is we've already seen our study. There's all, only from the occult and stuff like that is where it came from. It's inspiration. But there's no archaeological evidence for the stuff they mentioned in that book, unlike the Bible. Let me give you just a few quick examples. Metallurgy. The Book of Mormon describes the various usages of iron, steel, brass, and various metals in the Americas, they say, before the birth of Christ. Well, the problem is it's not verified, folks. Uh, archaeology has shown that metallurgy did not appear in the Americas until about the 9th century A.D. Oops. You got that one wrong. That's not the only one. Weapons of war. The Book of Mormon describes uh, the presence of chariots and other weaponry uh, that was supposed to be in the New World during their time frame, okay? The problem is archaeologists have found neither evidence of chariots or the weapons they mentioned in the Book of Mormon at that time. It's nowhere to be found. Major battles, the Hill, Cumorah, and New York is described by the Book of Mormon, listen, to be a location of two major wars that involved deaths of millions of people. Here's the problem. There's no remains of people or weapons of these wars found there. You'd think you'd find something. Right? Okay, crops and agriculture. Book of Mormon describes the various agricultures of the Americas as being similar to what we see in the Bible in biblical times. E, wrong answer. Uh, we now know archaeology that they didn't use those same crops as the Bible mentions in the Middle East. And the crops we do know that they did grow, Book of Mormon doesn't talk about them. That doesn't fit as well. Use of linen and silk. The Book of Mormon talks about linen and silk in their writings and saying this was used in America. So we don't find any of that, folks. Archaeology cannot verify what they stated. Animals. The Book of Mormon talks about animals in their writings. A, a donkey, cattle, ox, uh, oxen, even elephants living in the Americas during their time frame. The problem is, folks, none, zero, zilcho of these animals existed in the Americas. Listen, not North America, but Central America, South America, none of it were in existence during that time that they said as in the Book of Mormon. And let me give you one more. This is the big one. They, they can't get around this one. The Book of Mormon actually says that the Native American people here in America are the actual descendants of supposed early Mormon ancestors like the Lamanites, okay, who supposedly originated from Israel 2,600 years ago. Nice claim. Let's put it to the test. Uh, the problem is DNA samples have shown beyond a shadow of a doubt the Native American peoples are descendants from the Siberian and Asian peoples not made up Mormon tribes. And as far as the other uh, mythical Mormon tribe called the Nephites, who were supposed to be the white and exceedingly fair people, they don't find evidence of any of those guys either. Zilch. Nothing can be verified. So when you take a look at the facts of that, I don't know about you, but it appears to me when it comes to the Book of Mormon, with all due respect, somebody's making up a story. Unlike what we have in our Bible. That's completely verified all over the place, okay? And that's why Dr. Norman Geisler said this. He says, we find there is good evidence from archaeology that the scriptures, the Bible, speaks the truth. And in many instances, the scriptures even reflect firsthand knowledge of the times and customs it describes. Just follow the Bible, you'll get there. While many have doubted the accuracy of the Bible, time and continued research have consistently demonstrated that the word of God is better informed than its critics. In fact, while thousands of finds from the ancient world support in broad outline and often in great detail the biblical picture, listen, not one, not one incontrovertible find has ever once contradicted the Bible. Why? Because it came from God. And God is holy and he doesn't lie. So it wouldn't contain any lies. And guess what? It doesn't. Okay? 
And folks, this is why you need to be encouraged today. You can't have it both ways. You cannot agree with some of the Bible's teaching and turn around and deny its authenticity because the historical integrity of the Bible alone, okay, as verified by archaeology, proves it's the genuine word of God. Okay, and anything short of that, once you look at these facts and you still persist, it's called hypocrisy. And so it is with the skeptic of the Bible. They spout off bold claims. I used to be one. I understand. Spout off bold claims that the Bible cannot be trusted. It's a book uh, whooped up by man. It's full of errors. Yet it is they, like I used to, who refuse to look at the evidence. And so I want to encourage you today. Be encouraged, church. You don't have to give in to the attacks of the skeptic. You don't have to give in to doubt. You don't have to give in to one iota criticism. What we hold in our hands is the genuine word of God. And that's why we have to understand, bring it home, Sunrise, we have to understand that God has given us a golden opportunity. Our world, just like we know, understands that this world is messed up and it's getting worse and it shows no signs of reverse. And so our world, their hearts are ripe. They are, they are understanding that, hey, listen, they got questions going through their brains. Why do I exist? Where did I come from? What is life all about? Where's all this evil coming from? Is it going to stop? And is there any hope? And it's high time that you and I capitalize on this and not just say that the Bible came from God. We need to show them the Bible really did come from God and we really believe it ourselves. By the way that we treat it, by being willing to put our lives on the line for it, like these Christians, let's take a look. demonstrate throughout this study folks that uh, don't be a hypocrite no need to point fingers and make claims that the bible's full of errors and whooped up a man especially when you look at this evidence but what kind of hypocrites will we be playing if on one breath we say the bible came from god but that's where it stays after the potluck today those christians around the world are willing to put their lives on the precious word of God and many of them die for it let us be that kind of church this year that shows that we really do believe in the word of God and get it off that kitchen table <laughs> blow off the dust and get in there and be blessed amen let's pray well hi this is pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and hope you enjoyed today's study but before you go let me ask you one final question are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell. 
Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain, and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go 
and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.